scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 7. It's um, on page 685 in your pew, pew Bibles. So we're going to read Matthew 7, 13 to 23. Since the last time I was up here, it was in May, and I've been away all summer. Um, I just want to, and I haven't said this in a while, the reason I always point out the page 685 in the Pew Bibles, because the version I'm reading is NIV 84. If you're looking on your phone, it's probably the newer version of NIV 2011. Um, and the last thing before I read is... Um, uh, we were away all summer in Asia, and um, we spent time with Jason, Ella, Eric, and May, and they um, they send their greetings, and they look forward to spending time with us in the next year, because they'll be back. All right, so Matthew 7, verse 13. I should have drank some water before coming up. <clears throat> verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. May God bless the reading of his word. I've had a lot of conversations with people about religious topics. And especially when you leave the United States and move to another country, you find that religion is a topic that people enjoy discussing. Like in the U.S., it's one of those things you don't discuss. You don't discuss religion. You don't discuss politics here, or you're not supposed to. And then the the third thing you don't discuss is how much money you make. But when you move over to China or move over to Taiwan or live in Indonesia like we did for five years, you find that people are often happy to discuss religion. But I find in the middle of all my conversations, there tend to be two misconceptions that people have about religion. Now, guess them before I share them. Can anybody guess what's the first misconception that people have in their minds about religion in general? Anybody want to raise your hand and I'll acknowledge you and you can, can share it? What are misconceptions Mistaken notions, wrong ideas that people have about religion in general. Anybody want to try and take a guess? Okay, please. Say it again. Okay, that's that's something you mean that Christians are closed minded or that. Okay, the misconception is that Christians are closed minded. Actually, I think Christians are 
should be very close-minded, but you'll see that in a moment in, in my sermon. But that's interesting, and it does come up in conversation. But that's not one of the two main ones, though, that comes up. Can anybody else want to take a stab in the back? Ted? Yeah, that's the first one. Okay. Uh, the first um, misconception is that all religions are equally valid and they're all equally um, good roads to lead you to God. And the second misconception, which sort of flows from that, is, is that all religions are basically saying the same thing. So people blur the distinctions between all the religions, usually by focusing in on morality, and then they say, well, all roads are equally valid. Now, pick up your Bibles. And if you didn't get a chance to look at it when Jason was reading, take a close look at this, because if ever there was a text that completely destroys that those two misconceptions and that mindset, it's this one. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. My point is, is that God wants you to enter through the narrow gate that leads to life, to eternal life, eternal life that not only happens when you die, but eternal life that begins even now. And by us having this in the word of God for us to read, we see that it's something that God wants. And notice in verse 13, this is a command. Enter through the narrow gate. This is Jesus telling us what to do. This is Jesus, in a sense, asserting his authority over against everyone else and saying, I'm telling you what to do. Go through the narrow gate and not through the wide gate. Now, when you think about this, um, it, it bothers a lot of people and it bothers people because, well, there's an awful lot going on here. The first thing that's going on here is, is that Jesus is saying there's more than one way that people are talking about. You've got the wide way and you've got. The narrow way. And that bothers people because Jesus is basically saying of all the religions out there, Christianity is the only one. And he's being very exclusive. And as you were sharing, Christians are very narrow minded if they think that Christianity is the only way of salvation and Jesus is the only savior. Now, we believe that because Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. That is the most exclusive religious statement that's ever been made by anyone. He not only says there's only one way, he says that he alone is that one way and that every other prophet, every other religion, every other way that supposedly gets you to glory when you die, forgiveness of your sins, all that is wrong. So Jesus says there's two pathways. There's this narrow gate that leads to life and you've got this broad road um, that leads to destruction. Now, the reason why this really bothers people today is because we know that it's necessary in a society. I'm not talking about religion right now. I'm talking about more about society. Societies have to have tolerance. You have to tolerate all the religions And it's not good for a government to adopt just one, because usually if a government adopts just one religion, then the people who believe other religions will be persecuted. I experienced that in Indonesia. Indonesia is a strange combination of a political policy that says that we should be able to live with all religions in harmony. But yet everyone in government, almost everyone in government is Islamic. 
So you have this this tension when any kind of a country or a nation adopts one religion is the only way. And so we know that in government and in society, you have to have tolerance and pluralism, pluralism. That's a hard word to say. It's like saying Hillary Clinton three times really quickly. Hillary Clinton, Hillary. It's hard to do pluralism, pluralism, plural. See, on the third time I get I get tripped up. Pluralism is one of these fancy ism words that means that that we believe in multiple ideas, multiple perspectives, multiple religions. Well, in our country today and in our Constitution, we are not a Christian nation. That may be a wake up call for some people. We are not a Christian nation. Our Constitution does not enshrine Christianity. Our Constitution um, ensures the right of all people to believe in any religion without coercion. And the state doesn't coerce people to believe something or not to believe something. That's one of the wonderful things about being an American. And that's one of the things that we celebrate. So we believe that there's tolerance and pluralism in society. But then people have misunderstood that to think, well, if in society we have to grant equal space and equal access for all the different religions, then that means, of course, that all religions must be equally valid. So we move from tolerance and pluralism right into universalism, where every road is okay because we're all going to be saved in the end. Do you see that? And that's one of the main things that's wrong with the way that we're having religious discussions today. The kingdom of God is not the U.S. government. The kingdom of God is not any government. And the church is not um, the U.S. government either. And the U.S. government should not try and play the role of the church. And so many of the problems and tensions we have today in society is, is when religion tries to assert itself too powerfully in the lives of individuals and that offends people or when the government tries to take away the rights of of uh, individuals to practice their religion. So we have an extreme problem in America to, today connected to this. But when it comes to our religious discussions, if we're Christian, then you need to unashamedly be willing to say that you have a very narrow minded view of salvation. That Jesus Christ is the only way. When I was in Indonesia and I was teaching world religions class for five semesters um, and the non-Christian students had to take my class if they were English speakers. I loved it. Um, They didn't give me the Christians. They gave me only the non-Christians studying all the different religions of the world. And it was a great, great experience. But my students ended up understanding Christianity better than the Christians. And they would come back after their uh, religious interviews because one of their assignments was they had to go interview a religious professional that wasn't of their religion. So that meant that the Buddhists had to interview like Muslims and the Muslims had to interview um, Catholics or Protestants. And then they had to come back and then report the results of their interview. But my students got very troubled whenever they did this religious professional interview survey because they came back and they're like, they're like, Dude, guess what we found out when we went to interview the Catholic priest or the Protestant pastor? And I'm, and I'm like, what? Well, we put all of our heads together, all the results together. And I think we, we came up with the fact that 87% of all the religious Christian professionals who were interviewed in Indonesia, they all did not say that Jesus was the only way. They're like, we're reading in a Bible where Jesus says he alone is the way, the truth and the life. So then my Muslim students are telling me about how they're pushing the Christian pastors. But doesn't Jesus say this? And 
the, the Christian pastors wouldn't say that because they were good Muslims that they weren't going to heaven when they died unless they trusted in Jesus. At least 80 87 percent of them were not saying that. That really disturbed me. And it disturbs me because even today in America, people are afraid to say that they're afraid of being called a narrow minded Christian. But here's the point. It's not narrow minded if it's right. But that leads you into a whole nother discussion, which I'm going to get get into in, in just a moment. See, the problem today is, is that this there are a group of people who believe what we call agnosticism. Agnosticism basically says if someone is an agnostic, they say about religion, well, I don't know. Jesus says that he's the only way, the truth and the life. Well, I just don't know. So there's two kinds of agnostics in the world. There's the soft agnostics. Those are the ones who say about themselves, I don't know which religion is right. But then you have hard agnostics who say that you cannot know, that it's impossible to know. It's not impossible to know some scientific truth. It's not impossible to know um, truth in, in a few other areas, like in math and things like that. We have truth that everyone acknowledges. But when it comes to religion, who's to say what's right or wrong? And so if you run into a soft agnostic... Um, that's troubling. If you run into a hard agnostic, you'll probably lose your faith because you'll come away from it. Um, unless you're rock solid in the word of God, you'll come away from that conversation, scratching your head, wondering, well, how can anybody know which way is right? Well, Jesus not only says that there's only one narrow gate that leads to life, he says that there are only a few that find it. So not only is Christianity exclusive um, in, in the fact that there's only one religion that's said that leads a person to, to salvation. Jesus is saying there's only a few people who are going to find it. What does that mean? That means that, that the majority when it comes to religion is wrong, according to this passage, and that all these other ways as well are wrong. Uh, I want to give you an illustration of a narrow path um, the first my first response to the to the agnostic is this. It's not narrow minded if it's correct, but then the agnostic will say, well, how do you know it's correct? Um, but let's talk first about the fact that sometimes there's only one way to get where you need to go. You know, this is true in in medicine, for example, when you go to the doctor and a friend of mine um, had cancer recently and the doctor told her, he said, there's only one way that you're going to come out of this alive. And she said, what? And he said, you've got to go through a bone marrow transplant. And so my high school friend um, who we were in band together, she went through a bone marrow transplant. So when the doctor says there's only one way to treat something, everybody goes, yes, that's correct. But when a religious professional says there's only one way of salvation, then everybody scratches their head and says, hmm, I'm not sure if I like that. But let's talk about one pathway. I've got a picture to show you. Um, do we have it up? Should be two pictures. OK, what is this picture? This is uh, Pastor Tim and his son, Martin, um, in Molokai, Hawaii, riding a mule ride to get into the leper colony that, that exists even to this day in Molokai that was established many, many years ago. Um, they sent people who had leprosy there because they didn't want them to infect the rest of the general population. 
So there's still a leper colony that lives there. But the problem is, is that if you want to visit the people there and talk to them, then number one, you have to get a permit. But number two, there's only one way you can go. And that's over this huge mountain in Molokai down riding a mule on a very narrow, small pathway. This scared me half to death. Here we are sitting on mules and the mules are doing this, you know, and they're walking about this, this fast and mules walking like that. And if the mule looks over like that, I'm like pulling the reins back so that the mule won't do anything crazy like that. So we're walking on this small little path because it was the only way possible to get into the leper colony. Let's see the next picture. Hopefully it's a better picture. So that gives you an idea. Do you see how high that mountain is? And that little, little itty bitty winding path took us all the way down into the leper colony. Well, what is Jesus saying from this passage? He's saying that there is only one way, one narrow, itty, 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 bitty way to find the pathway where at the end you find eternal life. And it's not riding a donkey. It's going through the one who himself rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, why do we not apologize for our narrow mindedness? It's because there are reasons why it is that we believe in Christianity. And my answer to the agnostic is this. You say that I can't know. Well, I have a few questions for the agnostic. Can you deny that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. See, the agnostic can't refute that. That's a historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But if even people who don't believe that particular fact, they have to answer this question. How do you explain Western Christianity apart from an empty tomb? How do you explain how Christianity took off in the Roman Empire? How do you explain that the 12 men um, that, that denied him before his death then were willing to die for him, even to be crucified upside down. What turns fearful people into willing martyrs if there wasn't an empty tomb? There's no explanation. So I say that there's a historical reason. There are historical reasons why it is that we Christians believe what, what we believe. And there's also subjective reasons. I've looked at people's lives and I've seen how Jesus Christ has changed people, has turned people who used to be hateful people into people who love, has turned murderers and abortion doctors into people who tirelessly campaign for life and the rights of all to live peacefully in the world. I've seen God turn alcoholics into people who are upstanding members of society and greedy people into givers. What can do that? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I say to the agnostic, there are historical factors that help us um, understand why it is that we believe what we believe. There's also subjective factors. We see how Jesus Christ changes our lives. But also, in addition, there are internal factors where the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart when we hear the gospel. And just as when Jesus is having a conversation with Peter and Jesus asked Peter, who does everybody say I am? And Peter says, well, you know, some people say that you're one, Elijah or one of the prophets. And, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my father in heaven, here's the point. 
No one believes in Christianity. No one becomes a Christian unless you have the internal action in your heart of God revealing to you who Jesus is. And so that should give us ultimate patience and ultimate love in conversations with agnostics and people who believe in different religions, because no one is going to change their religious views unless God, the Holy Spirit, opens up their eyes. And it is for that reason that we trust Christ and we continue to share the gospel with people, even though the message that we're saying is offensive to some. So if you're following along in my outline, God wants you to enter through the narrow gate that leads to life because many are on the wide road that leads to destruction and only a few enter through the small gate, the narrow road that leads to life. But notice how in this passage, Jesus is not just concerned about that. He's concerned about the fact that there's a lot of people out there who are preaching on that wide road to destruction. There's a lot of false prophets out there. And even today in in our American society, there's a lot of people who claim to be Christian. But if you listen closely to their message, you will not hear them talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. You won't have them talk about our need to repent of our sins as we believe the gospel. You don't hear that. It's absent from their message. So Jesus tells us in verse 15, watch out for these kinds of people. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them. So Jesus says these false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they wear Christian garb. They wear what Christians wear, what what Christian teachers and prophets wear. They come to you looking like a sheep. They look like a sheep, but actually inside they're wolves. (coughs) They're not sheep. So Jesus says, you you want to see the difference? You want to tell the difference? You don't look at the externals. You look at their fruit. Look at their life. Look at their life and see what it's saying. And he uses an illustration that I can really gravitate towards because I grew up in Florida My family had fruit trees. We had orange trees. We owned many, many acres of orange trees on um, on what now is the Kennedy Space Center property. So when they were going to build the Kennedy Space Center, the government exercised what they call eminent domain. And they took away all of our land, took away our beach house um, and then took away all of our orange groves. But I thought it was interesting that even though the government took away the orange groves, they still continued to cultivate the orange groves. So my dad would drive us out to see our old orange groves and he would see that how the JFK and, and all those people back then um, took away our orange groves. But I thought it was interesting because when he would drive us out to the orange groves, we had the good section. And my dad would be like, son, go grab some oranges because ain't nobody out there. So I would go and grab some oranges. And then we had I shouldn't be saying that my father's dead. He's not here to to defend himself. But yeah, he told me, go grab the oranges. They're just going to fall on the ground anyway. And then on the other side, we had the bad trees. 
Now, these were trees that something happened to them. I think they got a little bit cold during one winter, but the fruit was this big and it was brown. So over here on this side, we have these huge oranges that were absolutely orange and they look like softballs rather than oranges. And over here we had these little itty bitty 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 things that were brown. And you know what the government did eventually? They took those trees, they knocked them down, and they burned them up. Just like the illustration that Jesus uses. Well, that's what Jesus says is going to happen to false prophets that are not preaching the word of God. They're preaching their own opinion or what's politically expedient or acceptable today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not politically correct today. Universalism is. Tolerances. All religions are saying the same. That's what's politically correct today, not Christianity. So Jesus says those who are preaching the false gospel on that last day, they're going to be gathered up, thrown into the fire. And you can tell them right now by their behavior, not simply on the basis of what they say. Now, notice what happens here. Verse 21. Now, he's talking not simply about false prophets. He's talking about fake Christians. And I want you to pay attention because I want you to examine your life today and ask yourself, I doubt we have any false prophets in our midst, but we might have a few fake Christians. So how do you tell a real Christian from a fake Christian? Well, listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? That I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Jesus is saying on the last day, a lot of us are in for a rude awakening. There's people who recognize that Jesus is Lord. They even call him Lord. There's people who, through the name of Jesus Christ, have seen amazing miracles happen. They've, they've even taught the word of God, Jesus says. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. They've cast out demons through the name of Jesus Christ. So through the name of Jesus, the name was honored and amazing things happened. The demons left. And in the name of Jesus, even many miracles were performed. And Jesus looks at those persons and he says, it's not your actions and your ministry that saves you. It's whether or not you've really repented of your sins, turned And trusted Christ because the work that God wants us to do is to believe in the Son of God. That's what John the Apostle tells us. So as we look at this passage, it's a wake up call to realize that you're not going to be saved by your works. You're not going to be saved by even doing religious good things. You're not not even going to be saved through a successful ministry. The only thing that saves is faith in Christ And with faith in Christ comes a repentant attitude in our hearts towards sin. We no longer follow it, embrace it, think it's okay, enjoy it. We want to get rid of it. So Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. You evildoers. You see, the fruit of a false prophet, the fruit of a fake Christian, the fruit of of someone's life shows whether or not they've really believed. So we're not saved according to our works and we're never going to be good enough. But Jesus is saying that if someone 
has experienced the narrow way of salvation that leads to eternal life, that that change in their life has moved them from committing evil as the main course of their life to now following the Lord and doing the will of his father who is in heaven. So let me ask you today, are you a real Christian or are you a fake Christian or are you a non-Christian? You see, there's a difference. Real Christians trust in Christ. There's been a change in their life. And they want to do the will of God in their hearts. Fake Christians want to show up and convince everybody that they're a Christian. And non-Christians often are simply honest about the fact that they're not there yet. And in the scripture, we see a different approach based upon whichever category you're in. Jesus Christ welcomes those who are seeking to come to him and find rest. He welcomes non-Christians to search, to strive, to ask those difficult questions and and to do so unashamedly and realize that we as Christians should be very patient with that because no one comes to Jesus unless the father draws him. But fake Christians, Jesus has no tolerance for. And the Bible warns us today we will not inherit eternal life if we're a fake Christian. Jesus Christ came into this world to show us the way, the narrow way that leads to life and to invite all of us on that same pathway. Jesus says, I am the way. He is the truth and he is the life. And when you enter through him, through the one who says he is the door, you will be saved. Jesus says you'll find pasture, which means you'll find good stuff to eat, you know, um, and all that happens because you're willing to move from trusting yourself in your works to moving to believing and praising the one who died for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And let's pray in his name. Lord Jesus, we thank you that though you wake us up with reminders of fake Christians and false prophets, you encourage us that anyone who follows you on the narrow road of life will receive life because you're living and because you live, we can face tomorrow and because you live, we can even face today and the temptations, the struggles and the difficulties. So we turn to you, Lord Jesus. We pray that we would be unashamed as we hold to the true gospel and have conversations with agnostics and non-believers and people who believe in other religions. We pray you'd give us wisdom, faith, courage not to compromise, and assurance in our hearts that Jesus is the Savior and he's the one whom we trust. And he will deliver and whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.